You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Let me open with uh, the scripture from the second chapter of Ephesians, reading the first nine verses. For those of you who have brought your Bibles along, there's one. <laughs> it's Ephesians 2, Dr. Ness. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that of yourself it is the gift of God. I only meant to read the first eight. I'm sorry. It doesn't go till nine. It'd be a lot more subtle if I had one of those little books. You wouldn't notice what I was doing. Well, it is a great honor to, to speak this morning. If I could just <laughs> use simple words. It's a great honor to speak this morning. I was very flattered to be invited. I should perhaps acknowledge the presence of Dr. Cushy and Dr. Barnett, and my esteemed colleagues and friends from Registrar Land and other friends. <laughs> and, of course, the students who are here. Eager volunteers, I'm sure. <laughs> to drink at the well springs of inspiration. I should begin with an apology, which I always do. Invariably, whenever I do anything, it, uh, it saves me the awkwardness of being exposed to condemnation later, which is an inevitable consequence of anything I do. My topic this morning is not a very interesting one. <laughs> I want to talk about the cardinal doctrine of the Christian religion, which is faith. And uh, since that is hardly novel to, to most of you, to any of you, uh, I want you to feel free to, uh, to do whatever comes naturally. Uh, you, if you leave, you'll, you'll be docked in some kind of a disastrous way. I don't know exactly, some kind of cuts or something, some grade lowering. But you can sleep if you like, or pass notes around, or uh, giggle if you like to do that, or, or visit if you like to do that. I have that happen in class. I just had that happen yesterday. Uh, you could, well, you could, you could have come late. I don't think there's a docking for coming late. Is there, is there a docking? There, there is some guys a half. <laughs> there's a half. Well, so you couldn't come late. Anyway, it's too late. You're already here. <laughs> You can leave early, if you'd like. I don't think there's any penalty for leaving early. So, I, I begin with that apology. And I have also to confess that my confidence was somewhat diluted when I, by chance, glanced on a list of potential speakers for this morning, in which my name did not figure as number one. It figured as number 17. Right after Kermit the Frog. Let me first define faith in the sense that I'm going to use it. And I uh, offer by way of, uh, of another apology or another self-justification of which I have an unlimited number, that I'm not a theologian. I say that because I see his reverence and I see Dr. Hamilton, who are theologians and who I'm sure are taking notes so that they can call my attention to the egregious errors in doctrine that I will uh, shove off on you this morning. So I have to begin with that, uh, that self-justification. I'm not a theologian. So my definition of faith is going to be pretty straightforward and simple-minded. That may, in fact, be appropriate. 
certainly is for me. Faith is, first of all, according to the, to the theological books that I've looked at and, and, the, uh, and the commentaries, I do not read, and it's a great regret of my life, I do not read Greek. I'll never forget, never ever forget, the first time I sat next to Dr. Bill Coker in chapel. And in his hand, he had a little red book with a plastic cover. And I, my attention had wandered, as yours will soon do. My attention had wandered completely away from the speaker. And it was either fall asleep or see what Dr. Coker was doing. So I glanced over, and on the pages of this book, an unintelligible squiggle. <laughs> Thousands of little symbols, of which I recognized one. Oh, I recognized two, pi and delta. So I knew it was Greek. And I was very impressed, and I've never ceased to be impressed by the ability to read that language. The language in which the Holy Scriptures, or at least the New Testament, uh, are written. I wish I could read it, but I cannot, so that I'm forced to go by translations, as most of you are, and, and I offer that by way of an excuse that uh, where there is some distinctive in definition, it's because I only can read English, and I don't read that very well, <laughs> as you perhaps noticed when I was trying to read those big words like hat. Well, my definition of faith, then, is first of all, it is acceptance, wholehearted acceptance, confidence in every statement of the Word of God, as that's the faith, for instance, is referred to in Hebrews 11. Secondly, and, and more particularly for Christians, it is acceptance and wholehearted confidence in the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as given in the New Testament and his particular mission among lost and sinful mankind. That's the second. And the third, well, I, I don't need to perhaps tell you, but that, of course, is the definition of faith that's given in, in the fifth chapter of uh, the Gospel of John. I think it's the fifth, yes. And thirdly, this faith, as I've defined it, and the definition is not original with me, but this faith, as I have shared it with you, is essential to salvation. It is the sine qua non. It is that without which you cannot be saved from the third Gospel of John and from, of course, the very passage that I read in Ephesians. Now, this faith can be elaborated in any number of ways, and it is. Of course, the whole uh, discipline of theology is an elaboration and varying elaborations and conflicting elaborations and historical and traditional elaborations and logical elaborations of that basic tenet that faith is those things. It is, it is confidence in the Word of God, it is particularly acceptance of the revealed mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is essential for salvation. Now that's the faith that I want to discuss this morning. I want to talk about just that. I don't want to go into more doctrinal matters than that. I think I'm on safe ground that far. Hopefully I am. That is the faith I want to talk about this morning. Now that faith is a precious and important thing, and you would all agree. Yes, it certainly is. We learned that when we were six in Bible school. It is all of those things. It is important, it is precious, it is central to our Christian life. Why go on? Well, because when you take that doctrine of faith, that absolute trust in the Word of God, and you see how it's reflected in your own life, and how it's reflected in the life of others, you come to a damaging revelation. Let me uh, share something with you. My ill-starred newspaper here. Already the object of some comments. This is Sunday. I read something that I want to share with you, which will just be as good a, a definition or a good a, a key to note as anything else I could say. And it has the added advantage of being in a prestigious newspaper. Religious revival forecast by Gallup. This is from Sunday, June 19th, New York Times, page 30, section 1. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just read this one little section. He goes on, the article suggests that there's going to be a great revival of religion and that the key figures in the revival of religion will be the evangelicals. Then he goes on to define evangelicals. This is Mr. Gallup's definition. I will now share it with you. Mr. Gallup said theologians would describe evangelicals as person who, and the quote begins, emphasize salvation by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ through personal conversion, the authority of scripture, and the importance of preaching as contrasted with ritual. I will read that to, for you again. It's always good to have secular authorities here. It adds emphasis 
and scholarly distinction to what you're saying. Emphasize salvation by faith and the atoning death of Jesus Christ through personal conversion, the authority of Scripture, and the importance of preaching as contrasted with ritual. Now, that's not novel or exciting. Just because it's in the New York Times, it may be novel for them to comment on such things, but it's not novel to you. It was at one time novel to me ten years ago. I was converted ten years ago. And I heard definitions like that, which I accepted at face value. Yes, yes, I said that is faith. And I'm talking about never forgetting Dr. Coker. I will never forget the shock. And it was a profound shock, a really a soul-transforming experience that I had as a Christian. I was about six or eight months into my Christian life when I discovered that a good number of the people uh, around me, and, and not, not, by the way, not in the Salvation Army. I had to want to, it was nothing to do with that denomination. But the people around me in Christian work, I was interested in, in a variety of Christian things when I was first converted. And a good number of those people, I won't say all, I won't say a majority, certainly not all, and hopefully not a majority, but a good number of the people that I was first confronted with as a young Christian did not believe in God. I mean, they were, they were in religion, they were in Christianity, and they called themselves Christians, but they did not believe in God. I had struggled with trying to understand why there was such a, uh, a gap, why there was such a chasm between what the Bible said was supposed to be the standards of the Christian life and the standards evidenced by the lives of these, of these people. Oh, not otherwise bad or reprehensible, but they had that one characteristic common to them all, that there was a big gap, there was a, there was a wide distinction between what the Bible said, as I was reading it in my simple, naive way, and in how they were living. And I pondered that, and I worried about that, and I prayed over that. What could the explanation be? And the explanation was, after having read a definition something like this ten years ago, the explanation was, and it's the simplest thing in the world once you get it, they simply don't believe in God. Now, this is not the same thing as being hostile to religion. They're not atheists. Atheism requires a great deal of mental effort. It requires an act of faith. It requires uh, the capacity to think logically over a long period of time. It generally... Not always, but most, athe most atheists are familiar with some atheistic philosophy. These people were not atheists, and they were not hostile to religion. In fact, they enjoyed religion. They liked being religious. They liked going to church. They liked having Christian friends. They enjoyed Christian fellowship. They liked hymns. They liked church buildings. They liked church food. They liked church suppers. You know, that chicken, you know, and the gravy, <laughs> and the rolls, and the nuco, and the Kool-Aid. They loved it. That was their idea of a big Sunday. And I was reminded in that connection that people who do not believe in God are not inherently hostile to religion. I was reminded in that connection with a statement which our, our beloved dean disgorged one year ago in this very place where I now stand. Now, at the time his reverence was speaking, I was taking notes, but unhappily for my reputation, he did not notice that. Now I can demonstrate it. I have here a quote from Dean Cushy, word for word. Summer, June 10th, 1976. I'm now about, in front of all of you in this room, to reduce our dean to the status of a living footnote. <laughs> and the quote is as follows. Religious people seldom throw away their religion. I'm glad I copied this. I've, I've kept this in my Bible, honestly. Religious people seldom throw away their religion. What they throw away is their sense of dependence upon God. They retain their religious practices forever. I'm going to read that to you again. That's excellent. Religious people seldom throw away their religion. What they throw away is their sense of dependence upon God. They retain their religious practices forever. Now you say to yourself, No. No, they not me. Not my friends. I am innocent. Let them have it, McKinley. I'm, an, I'm going to sit here and enjoy the others squirming because this is a charge that cannot be leveled against me. That's what you're saying. Well, that may be. I'll leave you to be the best judge of that. But for a good part of my Christian life, I 
hate to say that it was while I was still teaching here, but I've been here seven years, so no one can know exactly when it was. But some several years ago, of undetermined length, and now that I have tenure, I may as well just tell you. <laughs> no, no, I was only kidding about that. But some several years ago, for about eight months, for about eight months in my Christian life, and it, well, it has been some years ago, honestly, just when I was just new here. But for about eight months, it may not have been quite that long, but it seems to me it was throughout most of the school year. It was actually before Dr. Cushy became dean, to tell you the honest, serious truth of it. But for about eight months, it might have been a little less than that, I was in exactly the situation that I, I will describe to you now, and hopefully none of you are in that. But I genuinely did not believe in God. Now, if I'd have thought about it, if I'd have got down and thought about, do you believe in God, I would have said yes. I wasn't consciously atheistic, or I certainly wasn't hostile to religion. I enjoyed chapel. I enjoyed revivals. But I simply did not believe in God. I did not believe that the Bible was true. Well, I'll, I'll describe what I'm talking about in this sense. This is not any big great revelation, as you will soon see. What evidence do I have for that? Possibly. In my own life, I'll just share my own life. Prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. The Bible says to pray. Common sense suggests that if the Bible is the revealed word of God, that what it says must be taken with the utmost seriousness and dedication. And common sense also suggests, and spiritual revelation, and the great doctrinal and theological and devotional writings of Christianity all suggest that God is a real being and one with whom we can communicate. That we can speak and he will answer, we can converse, we can ask, he will respond, we can share with him, we can do all these wonderful things. Uh, this is not a sermon on, or, or a message, it's not a sermon at all. It's not a lecture on prayer. There are some exquisite and precious devotional guides on prayer and I wouldn't attempt to encroach on their sphere of inspiration. Except to say that for a long period of time, while I was relatively young Christian when I came here, I did not pray. Now, have you ever in your life had a, had a pastor come up here, or uh, not here necessarily, but in chapel or any place, in your home churches or in a revival meeting, have you ever had anybody admonish you for having a bad breathing life? Have you ever had anybody come up here and say, I'm concerned about your eating life? I am mortified to discover that some people in this audience do not have an adequate sleep life or a sufficiently inspiring watch television life or a sufficiently uplifting go-to-the-motion-pictures life. No. But you have heard people talk about your prayer life. You've even asked, I think, some of you, you've even asked the prayers of your friends for your own prayer life. You have all at one time or another, I should think, or at least some of you have all, I certainly did, struggled with an inadequate prayer life. How is this possible? You certainly, I guarantee you, do not struggle with an inadequate chatter life or visit with your girlfriend life or write letters home to mother life or talk life or scream life at soccer games. You have no difficulty communicating, you have no difficulty expressing yourself, and you are not hesitant to do so. And yet most people, certainly, and I, first among them, have struggled with an inadequate prayer life. You do not pray enough, you do not pray with conviction, you are not satisfied with your prayer life. Some of you, not all, maybe none, but certainly me at one time. Why is that? It is simply rock bottom, bottom line, that you do not believe that prayer matters at some times in your life. Prayer is a, a ritual. Prayer is what is done. Prayer is what is expected. You feel guilty when you don't pray. You do not feel guilty when you don't talk to your neighbor, or you don't talk to your friends, or you don't have fellowship, or you don't visit with your girlfriend. You don't feel guilty about that. You may be annoyed. You may feel left out. You may want to correct it, but you don't feel guilt-ridden, not unless you have some relationship with this person that's not adequate. Guilt is not usually a part of the normal kind of relationships, not, not usually. I wouldn't think. I may be venturing into somebody else's field, but I wouldn't think guilt 
is a, is a major part of a, of a real relationship. But guilt is most assuredly a major part of some people's relationship to God through the, through the vehicle of prayer. And it is nothing other than a lack of faith. If you genuinely and really believed that God was all he is purported to be in the Bible or stated to be in the Bible, and which, and which great Christians tell you that he is, and which great Christians tell you prayer will reveal him to be, then you would not have a bad prayer, or at least I wouldn't have had a bad prayer life. The reason you don't pray is that you don't get answered. And the reason you don't get answered is that you, there are times in your heart of hearts, do not bother to deny it. There are times in your heart of hearts when you really question whether there's anybody there at all to listen. I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. But I do. I most assuredly do. How about witnessing? How about witnessing? Why do we struggle witnessing? Well, I could give you any number of examples. Why don't we just get down to the bottom line on witnessing? Because witnessing does not strike us as vitally important as warnings would be in the case of real disaster. Real objective crisis overcome people and we help them. We warn them in advance if we can, and if we cannot warn them in advance, we care for them during and after. That is not what we do with spiritual crisis. That's not what we do with spiritual needs in other people for the simple reason that real disaster is real and spiritual disaster is to us less than real. Now, we probably would admit that, but the truth is our actions speak louder than words. I'll give you an exact parallel. Hopefully it's exact. Uh, I should know and I don't. Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, there was a fire in South Shore, Kentucky, which you all know about, and the flags are still at half-mast. Well, it, was, it must be less than a month because the flags will be at half-mast for a month. But there was uh, 160 people killed, as you know, in a restaurant up in South Shore, Kentucky. The uh, Beverly Hills Supper Club is the name of the place, and the people were all sitting around tables listening to John Davidson, or a little preliminary to John Davidson, and uh, the place caught on fire. And uh, many people were killed because there was a panic. Uh, and, and by the way, there's nothing sinful about this kind of a place. I mean, John Davidson is a certainly a uh, morally neutral performer. There's nothing evil about him or suggestive. And he, any one of you could have been there with your families. It's not a, not a bad place to go. It's just a little restaurant. It's like the diner's clubhouse. It's like that kind of a place. It's expensive. But it's not, it's not like a nightclub. I don't want to see use that kind of a parallel. It's just a perfectly legitimate place where any decent family could have gone. You could have been in that place. Or your families could have been in that place. And you're sitting there having your iced tea, and you're listening to the orchestra warm up because John Davidson's coming, and you look over to your side and you see smoke coming out from one of the curtains. Now, you know that the place is full of plastic and polyesters and tissue paper, tablecloths, and some of the people have party hats on, you know, and there's a lot of plastic ferns around. So your mind, active things that they are, I have had ample exposure to the activity of your minds in my career here. Your active minds go like little computers, click, click, click. Smoke equals fire. <laughs> fire can be dangerous. I once remember reading about a fire in which somebody was hurt. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be burned. I don't want to be suffocated. I do not want any harm to come to me. So, without saying one word to anybody else, you get up, you take out your napkin, you dust off the crumbs, put the napkin on the table, you say to your mother or your father or your girlfriend or your friends from work that you're there with or your neighbors or your people from the Lions Club or the Bowling Club or whoever you're with, you say to them, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'll be back in a few minutes. Go ahead and start without me. Out the door. You get outside and the place is in flames. And you say to yourself, boy, was I clever. I am saved. I am not burned. I'm not suffocated. Praise the Lord. <laughs> now, I've described this person to you and you say to yourself, of all the hateful, selfish, conniving rats 
in the history of mankind I have just described. A person who could cold-bloodedly notice a building was on fire and save only himself, not even his own mother and father, or her own mother and father, not even his bowling friends, or his fellow Rotarians, or Kiwanians, or Elks, or people from where he works, or people from the neighborhood. He could step out of that room and let them perish without hope in horrible, agonizing fire and say not one word to them because he was embarrassed, or because maybe he didn't think there was really a fire. He didn't want to take a chance on embarrassing himself. It wasn't really a fire. Of course you would have died. Of course you would, you would even risk your life to save those other people. You would certainly have risked your reputation to warn them. Why don't you witness? With equal alacrity and enthusiasm. Why didn't I witness during that period that I'm describing to you, fortunately, in the distant past? The reason was that in a burning building, I take the danger to be very real. In witnessing, I did not take the danger to other people to be as real. It was a theoretical danger. It was a 75% chance that things would go badly if they died without Christ, or a 50% chance, maybe. I wasn't absolutely certain that everything about religion was true. I wasn't absolutely certain that the claims of Christ as revealed in the Bible were true claims. They were probably true, and I would like to have been true, like, to, like them to have been true, and it pleased me to think that they were true, but I was not basing my life on those claims. Just, it's a simple, how about love? How about love? Love is not an option. Now this, I, I suppose, would include a larger number of you. Maybe not. Maybe you all be just uh, wellsprings of love and charity. But I most certainly was not uh, at this time, as I say, in the mystical past. I was not a wellspring of charity. I was a very hateful person. Not very hateful. I was subtly hateful. Very hateful is annoying. I was cleverly hateful. I centered my hateful remarks on people who were already disliked. No fool I. I picked out causes and the people who advocated causes that were already doomed in Wilmore in any case. And I joined the chorus of derision aimed at their helpless heads. Or I would pick out um, odd people, odd colleagues that I have had. <laughs> people were ill thought of by, their, by my friends, by their other colleagues. I knew that. Any, anybody would have known that who'd known anything about them. And I joined in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hee, 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 hee. Boy, do I feel good. I'm so excellent. And I'm so this. And I'm so successful. And I'm so happy. And boy, oh boy. And they are all the opposite things. Real love. A veritable, uh, a veritable fountain of charity pouring out of my heart. Now, love for other human beings is not an option if you're a born-again Christian. It is not one of many courses that you can take to demonstrate uh, that you believe in the Bible. It is the only course you can take. And I maybe, maybe should just say right now that this particular element in the, in the um, indictment, the element of lack of love as a demonstration of lack of faith, is the doctrine of holiness looked at in reverse. And the doctrine of holiness is the great distinctive, the great theological tradition on which this college is built. And it is nothing to be taken lightly. It is what makes, it is what distinguishes Asbury College from other Christian colleges. There are many things that distinguish Asbury from other Christian colleges. And to my mind, and I say this honestly, they are all good things. Uh, Asbury is a particularly charming and enjoyable place to work and an enjoyable place to be. There are difficulties with a small community, of course. And there are rules which not all of us would agree with. Not all of you would agree with. I am in complete agreement with all of them. But some <laughs> of you may in your more liberal and troublesome moments, uh, think ill of some of, the, uh, some of the restrictions. I'm not discussing that. Of course, it is not heavenly. Perfection will come when you pass to the next world. But in this world, Asbury is a charming and delightful and attractive and hospitable and warm and friendly little place to be. But that is not the major distinctive between Asbury and other Christian colleges. The major distinctive is what I'm hitting on right now, the doctrine of holiness, which is to say that the Christian life, the born-again Christian life, is lived out in love. 
But that is what marks Christians off from people who are not Christians. It is not an op- there's not a middle ground. Christian, non-Christian, loving Christian. Very loving Christian, super loving Christian, saintly super loving Christian. No, no. There's not a range, except as normal human emotions offer a range. But inasmuch as the human heart is capable of genuine love for other people, the Holy Spirit working through our hearts, enhancing our capacity for loving other people, that is what marks Christians off from non-Christians. That is most assuredly the doctrine of holiness, which marks this college off from others and the denominations represented in this college, like the Salvation Army and the Methodists and the Christian Missionary Alliance and the Free Methodists. Uh, the denominations in that Wesleyan tradition are marked off from other denominations at that point and that point alone. Well, there are several other points, but there are other Armenian denominations that do not offer holiness as an option. Well, it's an option, but it's not one of their distinctives. So love is not an option for the born-again Christian. Let me read to you. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Pretty categorical. Where is my escape clause? I want to say I love God. I even want to love God. I don't always, but I sure would like to. It sounds like an awful good thing to love God. But I've got a lot of people I don't like. It's not fair. There's got to be an escape. Can't I love God and not like these other people and do them harm and gossip about them and undermine them and attack them? It's not right. What kind of a Bible is this? Certainly not a legal document. A legal document would have escape clauses. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen... I can't go on. This is mortifying. How can he love God whom he has not seen? Now the clincher. My hopes are dashed. It couldn't be more categorical. And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. This commandment, not suggestion, not option, not nice idea, not devotional thought for the morning, this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God loves his brother also. What causes this lack of faith? There are any number of reasons. And, and, and in fact, I've been thinking about faith for some time because of my own unhappy experience these four or five years ago. And I was trying to think in terms of, of perhaps several sermons are not not to you, <laughs> don't despair, but several messages on the subject of what causes people to lose their faith. And as I say, there's a wide range of things, wide range of possibilities, and I was going to, uh, was going to open some of these possibilities to you. Uh, time doesn't allow, which is entirely my own fault, because I certainly had enough time. Uh, I could pick some of them off. Uh, lack of evidence. You do not see evidence of the Christian religion in your own life. You do not see evidence in the lives of the people around you. You are, are drawn inexorably to the conclusion that the, that the Christian religion is false. Now, you may not admit that that's the conclusion you've been drawn to, but that is the conclusion that you're living on, or at least I was. Uh, pride, the classical antique heresy of humanism, which translates in modern terms, when it's something of no importance, I'll pray about it. When it's something important to me, I'll do it myself and pray about it afterwards. You know, when it's the souls in Africa, or the souls in Costa Rica, I'll pray about it. Oh, Lord, help the souls in Costa Rica. Save them, Lord. Save the people in South Florida. Save the people in Afghanistan. Or even maybe New York City or Cincinnati. But when it comes to getting into medical school, winning the soccer game, asking the girl of girls to go out with you on the pay telephone in the dormitory, that's altogether too important to pray about. That is sufficiently important that that you're going to handle yourself. You're going to carry through in exactly the same way that an unsafe person would. You're going to use exactly the same techniques. You've got exactly the same aspirations. You're doing it for exactly the same reasons. And when it wins or whether it doesn't win or work or not work, you and you alone are responsible and you and you alone get the credit. Incidentally, God may or may not have saved the people in Costa Rica in the meantime through no effort of your own. When it's unimportant, you pray. When it is vitally important, you do it yourself. And maybe you have the good sense later to not or to give God the credit, and maybe not. 
Maybe you don't detect that that's hypocritical. But it seems to me that the reason most people do not operate in a context of faith, do not, uh, they lose their faith, or their faith never becomes great enough to, uh, to really honestly earn them the distinctive of born-again, saved and sanctified Christian, and this was certainly my case, is that the Christian religion seems to be too good to be true. It cannot be that anything as wonderful and as precious as the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it cannot be that such a wonderful explanation, such a wonderful escape, such a wonderful solution to your own problems and to the problems of mankind, it cannot really be that anything that perfect, that flawless, that glorious is really and honestly true. You know that your lives are marked by imperfection and by disappointment and by evil and by deception and by cruelty and by loneliness and by poverty of one sort or another. You know that all of existence, so far as you've ever known it, is clouded over by these dank and negative and unhappy considerations. So that when you actually start to think about, is there really some hope? Is there really a way that I, and you know better than anybody what you really, I mean, close your eyes now and think about what you really are, what you really do, what you really think, what you really want to do, but haven't the courage to do it because you'd be caught or it would be expensive or your reputations would be ruined or you'd feel guilty later. Think about what you really and truly are and think what your lives are and think what the lives of people around you are and think what history is and think what the world situation is. Dark and grim and unhappy and discouraging and sad. And when you think of all of these things, it is very difficult to realize that the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his conscious life of sacrifice, his death on the cross, has washed away all that is dark and evil and disappointing and lonely and poverty-stricken in human existence, washed it totally away in his blood and left happiness and optimism and whiteness and joy and eternal life. That is such an unbelievably wonderful thing that it is very, very difficult to believe. It is not unbelievable. I shouldn't have said unbelievable. But it is most certainly extremely difficult to believe. It is almost, not quite, but almost too good to be true. And I honestly think for most people who are religious, as you are and as I was, this may not be true for people who know nothing of religion, but for religious non-believers, like I was, that is the explanation for why I did not live in faith and, and why many of you may not be living in faith. It just seems to be too good to be true. Well, if that's, your, if that's the case, if that's the situation that you find yourself in, if you would like to have more faith than you have, I have excellent news for you. I have two pieces of excellent news for you. The first piece of excellent news for you is that it is exactly true. It is precisely, 100%, totally, absolutely true. And the second piece of good news I have for you, which is almost as good as the first but not quite, and that is that faith is variable. And the varying factor in the faith equation is your willpower. Happy, happy news. If your faith is inadequate, and you're the best judge, my faith certainly was, then you can do exactly what the blessed apostles did. They lived with our Lord. They saw our Lord. They were with our Lord every day. And yet their faith varied. It went down and downer and all the way down. And sometimes up halfway and sometimes up a third of the way above that. But their faith was very variant. And the great value of the lives of the apostles are that they were human beings confronted with Christ just like we are human beings confronted with Christ. And we can do exactly what they did in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. They can ask for more faith. And they will get it. Or they did get it. The book of Acts demonstrates that. And you can get all the faith you're capable of. And, you're, and, and it will expand. As your faith expands, your faith will expand. It's the only place in the world where that kind of circular reasoning is entirely valid. To get more faith, you have to have the faith to ask for it. 
illogical in every place for the Christian religion. For the Christian religion exists beyond the parameters of mere human logic. Merely because something seems like circular reasoning to the world makes it all the more precious and real to our blessed Lord who sanctifies everything in his Holy Spirit. So if your faith is inadequate, and it may or may not be, then the solution to your problem is, first of all, to recognize you've got a problem. And hopefully I've demonstrated that. I've certainly demonstrated it for myself. And then come to that place where your conscious will acts in conjunction with the grace of God. Now, in Ephesians, we know that faith is a gift. But like all of God's gifts, it is a gift that is available to whomsoever asks for it. The only other alternative to that statement that I just made is the unacceptable conclusion reached by Calvinists, and that is that God gives gifts to whom he pleases, these spiritual gifts, to whom he pleases, and withholds gifts from whom he pleases, and those from whom he withholds that have no choice whatsoever but to live in dank, misery, lonely, poverty-stricken, spiritually poverty-stricken, desperate, hopeless. That is not the spirit of Christ. That is not the spirit of the Bible. Whosoever will may be saved. Whosoever wants a topping up of faith has only to bring his conscious will into conjunction with the vibrant, eternal grace of God. Or put in more simple terms, all you have to do is ask. Thank you very much.